Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our study on the Kohelis Council, the wisdom that he shares with us about life under the sun and some of the challenges of that life, some of the pitfalls of that life, uh, some of the temptations of that life. And just as the end of chapter 5 posed some really interesting and difficult uh, words for us, chapter 6 brings the same thing to us. There's not a lot of clarity. There's some disagreement on the commentators as how they approach this particular text, but we'll do the best we can and be consistent with the rest of the book that we have looked at so far as the writer kind of makes a transition now in the middle of chapter 6, end of chapter 6, to advice-giving and, and proverbial kind of statements in chapter 7 and on, looking at some potential solutions to some of the, the difficulties and the challenges that he addresses in the first six chapters. Before we get to the text this morning, uh, next week we will be celebrating together the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be doing it uh, the old way. So there will be a distribution of both the cup and the bread. There will be a built-in time of, of silence and reflection for God's people. We think that's necessary and needful. And uh, if there are some who still would uh, rather stick with the old system and the sealed units, we want you to know that uh, on the main floor in the back of the worship center and then up in the balcony areas, there will be uh, several tables set up, and there will be prepackaged uh, juice and, and crackers if that's your desire. But otherwise, we are going to go back to, and some of you are wondering, what is the old system? It's been so long. I'm really looking forward to getting back to normal. You say, you've never been, Pastor Jim. Well, maybe that's true, but it, it'll be nice to get back to normal. But again, we want to honor everybody here, so the prepackaged material will be available, and you must help yourself either on the back of this main floor or up in the balcony uh, with what we make available to you. In addition, I find it really interesting much of what has happened in our culture, and uh, most interesting, some of the arguments that I've heard in recent days in social media and other places, even from Christians, that uh, bring a little bit of concern and alarm to my heart and brings the text that we looked at in chapter 5 and now into chapter 6 uh, to life. Uh, many of you, if you don't live under a rock, know the Biden administration's plan to forgive student loan debt, and you know the firestorm that, had, that has created back and forth between political parties and people, and uh, wherever your political concerns might lie is irrelevant to what I have to say today, regardless of the legality and fairness and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. My concern is uh, for some Christian who've come out on social media and support this as being a charitable and, and obedient to a Christ's command to forgive, and they're somehow uh, making Christ responsible for this administration choice that was recently made. Uh, some elites in our culture, most notably a former NBA coach, Stan Van Gundy, took a, a meme from social media and put it on his account that said that what the president has done is just like Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes. Wait, wait a second. 
That's blasphemous. If your Christians are out there posting that stuff, you didn't pay attention to what we said a couple of weeks ago. For in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. Be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. There is no connection between a presidential initiative and the work of our glorious Savior. So just, just stop it. It's one thing that the world's talking about that. It's even worse that Christians are buying into that argument. It has nothing to do. It's to conflate things that shouldn't be conflated. There's some real wisdom. Be careful with your words. Maybe rather than a political statement through a meme, you ought to share the hope that is found in Christ alone. Just maybe. And I believe really that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting after and as he makes these comparisons, I, I, I don't know. The government is not God and never can be God. There is a God in heaven, and He's far above and separated from you and I. The text makes that really clear. He's in heaven and you're not. Make, make sure you keep that straight. And make sure you fear Him, to reverence Him, to hold Him in high esteem and, and high regard, not as a political pawn, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. As far as a lofty opinion of government, I think he deals with that in verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, why are you surprised? Do not be amazed. For the high official is watched over by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. What he fails to include is there's a highest, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Boy, do we mess up life in so many different ways. But on a good note, as he goes through chapter 5 after dealing with all of these hard topics, he again reminds us of the things that really matter most. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil. I love that phrase. Find enjoyment, even though life is hard sometimes. In the midst of your toil, still find joy, find reason for enjoyment with which one toils under the sun the few days of life, pointing out the brevity of life that God has given to him, the sovereignty of God, for that is his lot. That is, that is life. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept His lot and to rejoice in His toil. That's a gift from God. And if you are enraptured by God's goodness, if you live in fear, if you acknowledge His gifts, if you acknowledge His goodness, you won't much remember the days of life because God keeps you occupied with joy in your heart. You see things the way they really are, and you believe and experience that God is good and that He's good all of the time. Now, I realize 
but sometimes we ask questions about His goodness. Sometimes we wonder about His goodness. Sometimes we say, where are you? Do you know? That's just a normal process of life. But all of us need to live every day and look at every situation as being from the good hand of God, as Pastor Andrew shared at the beginning of the service, under His divine authority and sovereignty, and be preoccupied with the good things in life, and let the other things kind of fall away and lose their sense of priority in our life. What a, what a great place to be. And then it's almost as if He changes His mind. So, follow along as we read chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do we not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be already has already been named, and it is known what man is, so that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And who can tell man what will come after him under the sun? Do you notice how he ends kind of on a high note in chapter 5, and then he says, but the other side of the story is a little bit more bleak and maybe even in some ways a little bit more depressing. It seems to be that, again, he's kind of changing his perspective as he writes, and he's wrestling with the realities under the sun. And I think there is much to glean from this text. We will do the best that we can, but uh, verses 7 and 8 are very difficult to understand, and beyond that, uh, some, some very challenging things. But let's just say it in the vernacular of the culture today, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no satisfaction. It's been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and expecting different results. He's told us over and over and over 
and over that the things of this life can't satisfy. And yet now in chapter 6, he says, but why not? It doesn't seem right. It is a vanity and a grievous evil. So what is it? Our culture and our world is trying and trying and trying and trying to find some sense of comfort and satisfaction under the sun apart from God, and we all know it cannot be found. And if for a fleeting moment you find a sense of enjoyment, you are simply reminded of your brevity of life, of the reality that you can't take it with you, And that every single one of us, whether rich or poor, will stand in the presence of the King to give answers to how we have lived our lives. So, what is it that we glean from chapter 6? Well, let's dig in and find out. Father, bless us as we tackle a very challenging text. As we do our best, as we glean from the wisdom of so many others who've gone before us and wrestled the language of the text, I pray that we would have a consistency within the context of these chapters to understand exactly what He is trying to communicate, His experiences, what He's learned, what He's seen, and what He knows about life under the sun and the fleeting happiness tied our money, to our stuff, to the honor that we receive in a culture that will forget about us soon after we are gone. Remind us of a better way to live. Keep foremost in our mind this reality that under the sun there is no lasting satisfaction. And show us your glory. Teach us to fear before you. Shut our mouths making luterous proclamations. Teach us to be still and know that You are God. Bless as we wrestle with the text we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Lack of satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in the things under the sun based on the reality that you can't take it with you, and that's what he says in the end of chapter 5. You can amass all of these things, but in the end, you stand before the one who will judge whether rich or poor. There's nothing to fall back on. There's nothing to offer on your behalf. There's nothing to make right what has been wrong. He's also taught us from chapter 1 that money and material possessions are problematic in life. They have a way of capturing your attention. They have a way of giving you a false sense of security. They have a way of of, of screaming at you, that if you could just get this newest and the latest and the greatest or that one more dollar, then certainly everything will be okay. And yet you find yourselves repeating, perhaps not in song, but in your head, there is no satisfaction no matter how much I try and try and try and try. It's a handful of nothing as opposed to what we've read in chapter 4, verse 5 excuse me, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness, contentment, than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Be thankful for what you have. 
Stop seeking something else to give you some sense of satisfaction. The truth of the matter is, all of the wealth and notoriety and honor that we achieve under the sun means nothing the day that our life is required of us. So all of those things that we put our confidence and trust in are problematic as we live our life, and they're impossible to lean on at the end of our life, and that's what he addresses in chapter 6 in yet another careful analysis to bring us to the place of dismantling our arguments and making a case for God. I truly believe there's a positive message in Ecclesiastes. You just need to dig a little bit for it. You just just need to search for it just a little bit. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. When he says seen, he is talking about all of the careful observation and reflection and thinking that he has done about everything. And he's done more than any of us, and he had more tools than any of us had because he was the wisest man who achieved the most, more than all that were before him in Jerusalem. And after all of that careful observation and reflection, he says that life is filled with painful misfortune. Life is filled with danger and frustration. Life is, is filled with all of these difficulties and challenges that, that he found to be evil and, and unnecessary and which lied heavy on all mankind. It weighted mankind down. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires reminds me of what he says in the end of chapter 2. Whatever my eyes desired, verse 10, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. The same things that we've told and concluded in chapter 5 and now are tacking again in chapter 6. Here's a man who was testifying, I had everything. I was at the top of the heap. I had notoriety and, and honor. I was a king, and I had material possessions more than I could ever use, and yet at the same time, I did not have power to enjoy them. In fact, he says, God didn't give me power to enjoy them. What does that mean? Is God this this God who, who, who dangles things in front of us and then snatches them away? Is this some game that God's playing? Why did He give me all of these things just to take them away from, from me? Well, perhaps… He's speaking to that, but perhaps he's simply saying, listen, uh, there's something that happens in life that is bigger than me that I just can't explain, and the only, the only explanation I can come up with is, is God. If God gave these things, it must be God who has withheld the power to enjoy them. It has to be God. Perhaps what he's saying is what he said even in chapters 4 and then again in chapter 5, things happen in life. And everything that we have exerted all of this energy into accomplishing and achieving, all of this that we've amassed, all of the stuff that we have, 
through circumstances beyond our control is unenjoyable. In fact, it goes to other people. He talks about the vanity of leaving it to another generation who has no appreciation for the cost, the price that you paid to achieve that position in life. He talks about having no one to give it to and becomes a ward of the state or somebody else who you don't even know takes possession of those things that you worked so hard at, and, and in all of that, you never found a sense of enjoyment, but a stranger does. Someone outside of your family, someone unknown to you, reaps the benefit from all of your hard work. He said, this is a grievous evil. That just doesn't seem fair. We live in a world that spends all of its time talking about justice and fairness. Let's be perfectly clear. Our sense of justice is never fair. It's always self-serving. <laughs> and there's one who will make sense of all things. We will all stand and give an account of everything that we've done in this body, whether good or bad. But no matter what you've amassed and how much protection you have based on your position in life, it is tenuous at best, and you can lose it in a heartbeat, a crash of a market, a bad business deal or any number of other things, illness and eventually death, to give confirmation that none of that really mattered. So as he says, enjoy the little things. Now he says, what a vanity this is. It's a grievous evil. I don't like the way this turned out. I don't think any of this is fair. And he's wrestling in his mind about the realities of life under the sun and someone outside of his circle enjoys what he did, but as far as his work and toil, he got no satisfaction from it. He found it impossible to reconcile the reality of all that he'd accomplished and the lack of joy and satisfaction that it really brought. Struggling with that. What's the point? all of this. Life is vanity. Hell is the word. It is a mystery. It's an irony. It's an emptiness. There's no meaning. There's none, none of this makes sense to me. It's an enigma, something hard to understand, something blurred and outside of my ability to make sense of it. It's way too difficult for me to understand that if God gave me all of this stuff, how come I can't enjoy it? And whether or not he intends to blame God for his lack of enjoyment, it's probably beyond the text. He is simply saying, and he's going to tell us why in a minute, that it doesn't bring the lasting satisfaction that he hoped it would bring, and that is a grievous evil. But I would like you to notice in verse 2 that there's some critical things that Kohala stumbles upon that is so necessarily important for us and the conclusions that we draw as a result of all of our toil. And although he has and reveals some of the right answers, the application for those right answers he was struggling with, a man to whom God gives. For a fleeting moment, for a fleeting moment, Kohalath realizes, <laughs> in spite of all that he'd amassed, 
all that he'd acquired, all of his notoriety, it was God who did it. Not him. God, God did that. God chose to bless him in that way. God chose to honor him in that way. God chose to, to lavish upon him all of this stuff. In a fleeting moment, he says, I, I realize I, I didn't do all this by myself. God did this. And yet at the same time, then he says, but that, but that same God withheld the power for me to, to really kind of enjoy them. What, what gives with that? I realize that, that none of this could be accomplished all by myself. Some of us are, have yet to learn that lesson, haven't we? Look what I've done. Whether rich or poor, whatever you have and whomever you are has been given to you by the sovereign God of the universe for His glory. And to estimate the value of your life by the accumulation of stuff is just foolish. <laughs> just foolish. And we all play the role of a fool from time to time, don't we? In a fleeting moment, he says, God's in charge of all of this. But then he declares, I don't think it's fair. I'm not sure God asked you, first of all. But, but nonetheless, as you share your experience, he's being honest, more honest than many of us are sometimes, right? Say, I've worked really hard for this. I've toiled my whole life. I've made sacrifices. Don't you understand, Pastor Jim? Yeah, I can show you a factory worker who did the same thing, and he has a pitiance compared to you. And he must wrestle and rest in the same reality that God is on the throne, and for whatever reason, he blessed this person and not me. And you have to come to a place of contentment over that. And that's that's a challenge sometimes in life, isn't it? The ability to see what you have sometimes overwhelmed by your innate ability to see what you don't have. And you're looking beyond so many blessings because you feel somehow you missed out. I don't know about you, this text astounds me at how relevant it is for the age in which we live. We try, and we try, and we try, and just a little bit more will finally make me happy, but it never turns out that way. And rather than resting in His sovereignty, so what's the deal, God? I, I don't understand this. Are you, are you toying with me? Are you playing with me? Is this some, some game? If a man fathers a hundred children, verse 3, and lives many years, the days of his years are many, but a soul is not satisfied with life's good things, talking about and I hyperbole, thousands of years of life and blessings and children, speaking in hyperbole, he's not speaking of having experienced all of that through the days of his life, but his soul is still not satisfied with those good things. He also says, and he also has no burial. He comes to the end of his life, and there is no, no dignity to that. He'll tie it together with another thought in 
a minute. Maybe he's tying it together to chapter 1. There will be no remembrance of the former things. When you're gone, you're gone, and very few people will remember you. How cruel is that? You'll be a forgotten memory. They've moved on long ago. For most of us, they'll move on before you're dead. Thank you. As he wrestles with some of this, he says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Another passage of Scripture, he says, probably better if I never lived to begin with. Kind of pessimistic and dark, isn't it? What's the point of all of this? Just kill, kill, kill me now then. Just put, put me out of my misery. You know, Fortunate thing is your misery becomes miserable for everybody else. Some people think of the same thing about you. Put him out of his misery. He's making my life miserable. It's because your perspective is warped. As he wrestles with it, he says, it's stillborn child is, is better than this. Love the language, don't you? Stillborn child, not a fetus, a, a child created in the image of God for his, for his glory. But this stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in, in darkness. And then when we talk about this, this darkness, having never seen the sun, the very sun that he was living under, remember, life under the sun. He never had any of the advantages that I had. He never saw what life could afford and offer. He never experienced a single day on this earth in the light of the sun. And in darkness, its name is covered Yet he's still better off than I am after I've achieved all of this. Moreover, the stillborn child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet he finds rest. What glorious thought that is. (laughs) This child in the womb and the image of God. finds rest, having never experienced life under the sun. I find a little bit of hope. I'm not building a theology on it. But if life begins in conception, I believe that there will be a multitude of aborted children in heaven, and God will give them rest. Be encouraged by that, and know that it is blasphemous. to tie a generation of baby killers to doing the work of Jesus Christ. That is blasphemous, even according to the text here. Why is there value and rest for the stillborn child born in the grieving pain of darkness, never to know the world as we know it? Why? in the world? Is, is, is that better? Why in the world do they find rest and, and I do not find rest? And even though we should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Aren't we all headed to the same place anyhow? The stillborn child, 
the king, the man who has had everything that, he, that his heart ever desired, the poor laborer who, who, who lived a, a faithful life and enjoyed the little things, don't all of them have the same fate? In spite of the fact that this stillborn child hasn't experienced any of this, they find rest more than I. Did you know that Job said the same thing after the perils and the tribulations that he went through? Why? Was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, God? Why did I have to be born and experience all of these things? Life is riddled with why questions. But those why questions reveal a lack of satisfaction in our lives, a demand to know more than God is allowing us to know and reminding us that life is precious. Life is given to us by God Himself, and that life must be lived on God's terms, not our terms. And He says, do we not go to one place? It is a rhetorical question. He's not asking for an answer. He says, we do. Whether the stillborn child or the wealthy individual or the poorest and the least of these, my brethren, we all go to the same place. Death is insatiable. We will all die. Ooh, sobering. Sobering indeed. He says in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes that even the animals will go through the same thing, and they will die. Life does not go on forever. And all of us eventually face death. Now, verses 7 and 8, it's such an obscure and difficult text, it's hard to be absolutely sure. But I think we can connect some dots. He then writes, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, and his appetite is not satisfied. In other words, he has an insatiable appetite for things, money and possessions and honor but no matter how much money and possessions and honor he received, he is never satisfied. He just has a craving for more and more and more. And we looked at that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, looking for that peace and comfort in, in all of the wrong places. I, I watch the Outdoor Channel a lot. I'm a redneck. I get that. But there's one of the individuals on there that says, my favorite place is the next place that I'm going to, and I'm thinking, hmm, chasing after the wind. This isn't enough. There must be more. It is the story of life. Some have said money isn't everything. It's way ahead of whatever's in second place. You want to bet? Here's a man who had everything. says, this is fool's gold. Perhaps the appetite spoken of in verse 7 is the appetite of death and Sheol. Perhaps it's the reality that all of us eventually 
Our lives will end in death. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, he asked in verse 8? Well, if we're all going to the same place and there is no satisfaction under the sun, what is the point of all of this? If even poor people who overcome hardship to live productive and respectful lives can enjoy their life, and I can't enjoy my life and we're all destined for the grave, what's, what's the point of of all that. What is the poor man? What has he achieved? Who knows how to conduct himself before the living? And then in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. So also is vanity and striving after good. David Hubbard in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says, what you see with your eyes, you can deal with. What you crave with your soul, you may not be able to attain. In essence, he's saying, look around. Stop looking past what you see and what you have and the goodness of life and the blessing of life and the few days that God has allowed you to, to be on this earth for this is far more satisfying than the wandering of the appetite, an appetite that will never be satisfied. As long as you pursue that appetite, life will be filled with vanity and a striving after the wind. As long as you are continually in search of gain and reward and haven't found a place of quietness, you will never find the fulfillment in life that God has created you for. This God that he will say, knows his name. Verse 10, whatever has come, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, so that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. In order to understand life, Kohaleth says, we need to go back to the beginning. For nobody under the sun, no human being ever exists outside of the divine sovereignty and plan of God. And God has named you, and because He has named you, He has claimed you, and He has taught you how to live soberly and righteous and No one is able to dispute the plan of God, whatever that is, poor man, wise man, long life, little life, stillborn, full life. God is in control. He returns to this this theme of sovereignty, if you would. And I almost think there's a play on words here, And, and here's how I see it. We're all out there trying to make a name for ourselves, but God has already named us and claimed us. Therefore, our sufficiency and joy doesn't come with whatever's under the sun. It comes in God alone. You follow me? I'm just trying to identify and and, and figure out who I really am on the inside. You are a child of the King made in the image of God created in the glory of God, male and female created them, and there is a plan for your life. Now, some live outside of that plan in their unbelief, and some live 
inside of that plan in their belief that still fall prey to this same temptation of satisfaction under the sun. But you will never make a name for yourself greater than the name that you already have, created in the image of God and for God's people, rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ. Once we were enemies, and now we are sons. You see how that goes? That's glorious. That's glorious. And who am I to dispute with someone stronger than me? And who is that one who is stronger than you, the one who created you for His glory? The current events, the state of affairs, your place in life, your lot in this life under the sun, all defined and dependent upon a sovereign God who is good, and your mere existence, your mere existence demands the praise of the Almighty One who formed you in your mother's womb and knew you before the foundation of the earth. Carsey Sproul talks about creatures from the dirt. <laughs> That's you and I, created from the dust on the ground. But gloriously, God breathed the breath of life into our soul and stamped us in His image. Such a, a clear depiction as He's trying to wade and wander through. He begins with sovereignty, and, and it's almost like He ends with sovereignty, trying to cling to something. And then He speaks to us. We have this uncanny ability to rationalize and apologize and over-explain and beg and argue and try and justify the way we're living life. Did you ever notice that? I'll keep preaching it, Pastor. So-and-so's here. They need this message. You fool. <laughs> you, you, you need this, this message, right? You, you fool. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? The multiplication of words brings the multiplication of meaninglessness. Only God knows the end from the beginning. He is the one who knows the plan for your life. Who are you to dispute Him, the one who gave you life and created you in His image for His glory? And has brought all this to pass. So I'm trying to figure it out and just be obedient. Who knows? What is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life that passes like a shadow to those who are trying to make a name for themselves outside of God? How'd that work out for you? Because here's a guy For all intent, it worked out masterfully. And yet he still says, I can't get no satisfaction. It's, it's empty. There's something, something missing somewhere in these few days of my life that passes like a shadow. And then I am forgotten. Pastor Andrew opened service in a similar way. I want to close the service. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has been, who has known the mind of the Lord and who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever and forever. Amen. And I hope as God's people you say, Amen. Okay. And we have it just for a moment just like he had in the end of chapter 5, and then it was gone in verse 1 of chapter 6. And now he seems to be getting back to that place as he transitions from a very, very pointed lament into maybe some promising insights. And again, ask the final question, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who has this all figured out? That you know what's next. Life without substance is stuff. And our days will flip by. We don't make any indelible mark on life, and we will soon be forgotten. And you say, great thought to leave us with, Pastor Jim. For those of that mindset, I'll remind you of a quote that we used a couple of weeks ago. If you think you're living in a world where things are getting worse and worse all the time, cheer up. At least you'll be dead before they get really bad. And I remind you, there's a God who's numbered your days and knows the end from the beginning. And none of us can quarrel with Him nor come up with a better plan. But we can find rest. So in chapter 2, He says there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. In chapter 3, he says, I perceive there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. It is the gift of God to all mankind. And in chapter 3, he has made everything beautiful in his time. In the context of his plan, it's all good, but it's hard work to find the good. If just for a moment as I close, I can speak to the young people here. You will come along and you will follow in our footsteps and make all of the mistakes that we have made. And you will chase shiny objects. And to the best of our ability, as we tell you it's not worth it and there's something more, you're going to think that you can get this all figured out. And and you're going to do better than the next generation. And, well, you just don't know what you're talking about, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or pastor. You just don't get it. Here's what the writer, the coalesce, says to you, remember also your Creator and the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. It is far better that you get this right from the outset and keep that foremost in your mind so that you don't replicate the same mistakes that we've made, but you live in a world that promises you instant gratification and promises you that you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do, and I add, only under the divine sovereignty of God. So you must keep that straight. You must live your life on the rules of the one who created you. But even my words will not leave that necessary mark because I had good people speaking into my life. (laughs) And there were days and still are 
that my wandering eye tells me something different than my heart tells me is true. Anyone else have that problem? Pray for this next generation, the godlessness of our culture, and remind them to keep themselves grounded. You say, how do we do that? It's simple. Fear God and keep His commandments for this. It's the whole duty of man, and God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Could it be that perhaps that's what he was wrestling with as he penned the words of chapter 6? Ultimately, I got an answer to God for all of this. Boy, if we could only live our life that way fearing Him and keeping His commandments. Maybe we could make this work, or maybe not. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it, for God has done it so that the people fear before Him. May it be so, our Heavenly Father. May there be a testimony of our life. May that be the experience of our days. May it be the truth in the ears of youth. May it be lived out to our last breath as we live under the sun. May we learn not just when we come into the house of God, but in every breath we take to have just an amazing, awesome, reverential respect for who you are, for what you've done in us, what you've done for us, the plans that you have in eternity, future, and bring a quietness to our spirit and obedience to our hearts and joy to our lives, knowing that God is good and a better day is coming. As Solomon, as the writer, as the Kohala struggled with life under the sun, we too struggle. Speak, show us your glory, and maybe in a, a little, little better way, maybe learn to be still and know that you are God, regardless of what happens under the sun. To God be the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.